0: Hello and welcome to Pablo's channel. Um, It's the 14th of July 2021 Um, and uh, it's just gone past 11pm
1: and in the background
0: I'm playing alien meditation music. alien in a meditation posture you know, cross legs he's got the old almond eyes, black almond eyes and he's looking right at me so yeah, back on the theme of um, alien contact, you know, there's another world watching the riddle of the flying saucers written by one of the greatest minds on this planet, Gerald Heard you know so yeah I've been enjoying this book so far expanding my consciousness so yeah uh, where are we up to? that's the question we're up to chapter 11 and I'm reading this from the mezzanine it's taken over from the dining room only because got the big TV up here now and I'm because the big TV's up here I seem to be hovering about up here most of the time now. Because it is a nice TV and I've got a nice sound system there as well. And it's nice to be in the mezzanine utilising this lovely space that this uh, this couple created experts in in loft conversions. So, anyway, chapter eleven is called "The Crews and Their Views," right, Dudley? We shall have to start at the wrong end. If the right end is to find the creature and then to study his behaviour, we can't expose whoever, if anyone. Is inside the disk or the tube or the globe they certainly are safely encapsulated in their husk or shell perhaps have to be. Certainly when you are going at 18,000 miles per hour you'd have to be shut up pretty shikorly if you are made of anything that we call a body a living body. So we shall try to find out their views by watching their muffled, if magically swift, behaviour. And to find out their views, we shall be on the safest ground, where all seems terribly up in the air if we try and gather what it is that they seem to view. Show me your tastes, and I'll tell you your character, is an old and obvious motto. What are they interested in? For our interests do, as it were, cast a shadow of our minds. We have only been watching them a couple of years, but already it may be that their interests have shifted a bit. Or perhaps we have, it will be the better way to put it, made them shift, jolted them out of a rut, made them brisker. When birds are on their own, and haven't been disturbed by man, they are far more unwary and casual than after our presence has caused them to keep out of the way, or at least observe their proper distance. When the discs were first seen, some of the most interesting sightings seem to suggest that they, or their directors, might be in a contemplative frame of mind. They brooded quite a bit hung above and gazed down. A good example of this was a report of an event during the last week of July 1948. The first story, handled by the United Press and afterward carefully vouched for, came from the peaceful and somewhat out-of-the-way town of Alice, Texas. Five reputable citizens saw it. That's enough, but nothing big. What was the big and strange thing was the time, the time it stayed on view. It seemed simply to have anchored itself aloft, for nearly two days it chose to be on view. It was spherical and gave off very little light. The observers came to the conclusion that it was some 5,000 feet up in the air. At last, planes were sent over to investigate. But by then, perhaps not unnaturally, the patient watcher of the skies gave up his vigil. Still, we may ask, why did he wait so long? We may add another question, more pointed. Would he now be permitted to ride quietly on the sky? The answer to that latter question is, of course, no. At least so far as the United States is concerned, there do seem to have been During 1952, some sightings of long duration in Mexico, especially above the capital. A medical student from Mexico City told me uh, that he and a member of fellow students saw one that hung high in the air for hours. A traffic director for airlines entering the city zone also confirmed to me that incoming pilots reported the presence of this craft. As to the first question of this lengthy brood... Can we ask ourselves what it is that these visitors want to find out? Obviously they are seeking information. There is no sign that they are planning invasion. They have let much of the advantage of their position slip away. The element of surprise has been permitted to evaporate for two years and more. Let us then deduce what we we can know about them. From their machines. And then from that. Try and construe their manoeuvres. Are they are they at all like us? Yes they are. And in some wonderfully reassuring ways. Maybe after all. It is good that we can't see them. For we can. For we can the better judge them. In the interval. By their acts. For their acts are those of. One says advisedly very circumspect, very intelligent gentlemen. There is everything to support such a reassuring verdict and nothing to tell against it, that their intelligence is day bright, of the highest standard, of the most penetrating insight and understanding. It is hard to doubt, all that we long and strain to do in the very height of mechanical and dynamical research seems in their hands, at their feet. But to this is added a considerateness that seems equal to their power. We have to start that last sentence with but, when we ought naturally to begin it with and. For in the squalid world in which we squirm, hiding our heads in the sand, filled with panic fear at our fellows, possible triumphs in winning power over the environment, we can't think of power as anything but added peril, a fresh temptation to mutual slaughter. So we have to say, but instead of and, as though (coughs) compassion, patience, and the wish to understand were the opposites of, and in eternal conflict with, the capacity to do what we want and to control circumstances to fulfil our aims. Except for the sad accident in the Mantel Affair, and then the great ship was a headlong flight from its midget pursuer. These visitors have always not only tried, but succeeded in giving right away and getting off anyone else's tracks. They have behaved with a deportment which showed not merely savoir-faire. But real considerateness. Let us then, when trying to track the paths of their inquiries, see a little way by asking ourselves what we should do if we possessed power that made us considerate and not proud, wise and not paranoid. Well, if we came upon a people much behind ourselves, we would behave as, thank heaven, we have in some cases. Since anthropology has come in, on our meeting and other culture, we will conduct ourselves with patience and courtesy and wait for those into whose presence we had come to let us advance. Meanwhile, we should be quietly observant and see how much our eyes could teach us about the character of our involuntary hosts. If then these visitors had, and had to have, their first views of us from a very considerable distance, what would be their First conclusion: We have some idea of that. We have now a self-portrait of our geographical appearance from 100 miles up, secured from a film sent up in a rocket. It showed a great stretch of the southwest of the United States. You could recognize the Gulf of California, into which the Colorado River flows. But of course, no hint appears on that. The first true and actual large-scale map that this vast stretch of land has any occupants. With the best magnification and the clearest lens, our proud cities will perhaps show us as an ambiguous stain on the landscape, not so striking as a spot of a mosaic virus infection that mottles the surface of a leaf. We ourselves, the measure of all things, the crown of creation, as we have with modest self-awareness named our presence, we should be far less prominent than a louse is to us. As then any visitor from far up aloft came, careening down, he would first see our stained towns. And then, as straight lines, however fine, of amazing narrowness, have a wonderful way of showing up from great distances, he would see the arterial arterial artery arterial roads leading to these stains. Anyone aware of plant growth would suspect that they were being presented with some sort of low lichen, but one that spread a fine filament system of roots over the surface of the ground to feed at the centre. To understand this one from a rather ill ordered and obviously rudimentary living organism, he, the explorer, would watch with care these rootlets. Even if they did not grow quickly enough for that growth to be seen, he might hope to detect some kind of circulation of fluid to and fro in these veins. And the observer would be rewarded. Minute objects did slowly percolate up and down these fine channels. Coming closer to to study this, the first signs of life on an otherwise apparently dead world the watcher would next perceive the nature of these crawling protoplasms or germs or circulatory free moving cells he would see as curiosity drew him daringly closer to the surface of the planet that they were low organisms crouched close on the fine runway or duct he would then perhaps be close enough to see that though they moved very slowly, they could not keep going for long. They became exhausted evidently, yawned open along their sides, discharged the contents of their digestive system, closed again their mouths or vents, and evidently fell to sleep. When they had recovered from their temporary exhaustion, they would suck into them again, or maybe devour some smaller creature. After this, their strength came back to them, and they would bubble off down the circulation ducts, so serving in their blind way the much vaster organism in which they lived and moved. This discovery of the slowness, the weakness, and the earthboundness of the things that moved in the ducts of the low and sprawling stain organism would make the observer faintly certain that these microorganisms could not be either very strong or intelligent. Crouched on the earth, able to proceed, and then only on all fours, only along these fine ducks, surely such creatures would have no interest save in what came straight in front of their downbeat no- noses, down-bent noses, sorry. They would have luminous eyes with which to see their way at night. But these eyes would be turned almost always onto the Earth. But then, having decided that this was the one species with which a visitor would have to deal, the newcomer would suddenly discover there was another species. A kind of rudimentary flying or air skinning insect. And what is more, there seemed more some evidence that this insect did take an interest in things above it. Was it possible that it had noticed us, the cautious, far-distance-keeping visitors? Hardly possible for such a rudimentary animal. Then, those who come on new facts must, above all, keep open minds. Nothing must be ruled out. In an unknown situation, however improbable, however ludicrous, it must appear to a creature of common sense. Of course, then. The first wise step is to plot the paths and so deduce the powers and maybe the purposes of the winged or flute species. The crouched crawling species have had to have roots, ducks in which to creep. Did their air-skidding creatures also have to follow lines? Because one might suggest they had to be drawn along fine lines from point to point. They were a rare species than the crawling lice or circulation cells of the earth-level ducks. But it was soon clear that nearly, that they nearly always were moving from one stain patch to another. Yes, they were on some kind of traffic schedule between these stains. Maybe they were a kind of fly that was just cross-fertilising the lichen stains. Perhaps they flew from one to another to collect this poly- its pollen. Certainly above the stained organisms could generally be seen a kind of dust that might well be be a discharge of fine reproductive spores on which the insect might live. In exchange, they would blindly serve the purposes of the great main plant organisms by mixing the pollen of one distant plant with the pollen of another. A blend which the plant organisms on their own could never hope to achieve. So the first thing to do when the important discovery was made was above all to study the roots of these air skinning insects. As we have seen, this nearly led to some accidents, though they may be going too far. In such perfect control of such perfect craft, these riders of the upper sky may not have been taking the slightest risk. If our grandparents or great-grandparents saw us weaving along in our cars on the densely trafficked streets, the whole pelting stream often surging brightly along at 30 miles an hour, they would have gone home and had a quiet and final nervous breakdown. To them, a modern street could only be a picture of perpetual temptation of providence, a nightmare of men continually, wantonly risking instant destruction, there can be little doubt that these facts the visitors were learning. They must keep away from us, give us a wider berth than perhaps they had thought at first they would have to give, but that was merely negative self-advice. Could they do anything positive? Obviously. Was it not clear that the insect species had some kind of energy? maybe tap power, perhaps no more than a higher protein diet. They gave them the force to get up, if only into the lower, thicker air, while all the rest of the living creatures either had to crawl along ducks or lower still, if larger, just sprawl, immobilised, as did the big stain organisms. So the next step would be to find out what these sources of power were. How could the onlookers do that? Even human advance has in the last decade suggested a way, perhaps the way. In the last few years, there has been increasing use of the plane for surveying for ores, mineral deposits, oil field possibilities, instead of stumbling across the rough terrain, trying with heavy instruments to locate radiation coming from the ground, trying with such superbalances as the Efos machine, ETHOS machine, E-T-V-O-S, attempting by gravimetric methods to gorge what masses of coal, etc., may be under our feet. It has been found that instruments can be carried in planes, which, riding in the air over such districts, Give readings useful in indicating what is hidden in the earth below. Let us suggest that the Buddha that hung for two days unmolested over Alice, Texas, was such uh, an observer. Maybe he was making soundings in the earth 5,000 feet below him and maybe another 1,000 feet into the crust. Texas is one of the richest mineral sites in the world. Already, it has given us much oil. There may be ores in that great district. Ores, the power, the power possibilities of which we are yet, to backwa- uh, we are yet too backward to know. Footnote one. As 1950 ended, we were all surprised, agree- agreeably or disagreeably, to learn that a man who was no technician had stumbled on uranium ore in New Mexico, the very state where full-scale atomic explosion was first demonstrated more than five years before. The visitor may may have been making his soundings to answer the question, how are the air creatures, at least the winged species, powered? What is their food or fuel? As we have seen, our apparent resentment at such quiet investigation led the visitors to be more circumspect. But can we think they would abandon all hope of learning of our powers? Not till they knew those could they safely approach a creature of uncertain intelligence and even more uncertain temper. And, final speculation, for till we know more we must explore every possibility. Might not this not unnatural supposition as to rationally cautious behaviour account for the one disaster that has marked this saga of the skies. Might it not account for the Kentucky tragedy? Fort Knox, which seems to have been in the centre of this episode, is, as we remarked above, the place where the greatest accumulation of gold was ever deposited by man. It has been guarded as though national safety depended on it. The late President Roosevelt, had the grand old fashioned fancy about element 79, whose chemical symbol is a U and whose atomic weight used to be given as 197.2, but of whose unique value in chemistry or physics there is no evidence. Its worth, of course, is due to the fact that it was and still is fairly rare and was once but is no longer. Fought to give a dead man a better chance of living in another world than the other poor fellow, who had none of it put in his, uh, his dead mouth, could hope to have. Hence the oddest dump on the whole surface of this planet. Can we doubt that any sky surveyors seeking to know of our powers and power resources, our ores, minerals and raw materials, would not sooner or later strike the radiation or gravitational displacement of this huge dump. Its existence and its treasured care would awake further speculation, further puzzlement. Why do we keep that yellow junk? Do we circulate it? No. Do we eat it? No. Can it be used as a secret form of power generator? That must be it. So they would make their readings, it must be radioactive. Perhaps the creatures have found some method to get power. Propulsive power, out of it. After all, one must never underrate strangers. Perhaps, after all, on one or two points, one of the species is really quite advanced. But still, the gold refused to give up its secret. Still it remained stubbornly inexplicable. Of no use... None whatsoever, completely inexplicable to any intelligent creature that did not know the tragic, bewildered, fantastic story of man's illusions and mistakes, misapprehensions and murderous muddles. How could any creature of understanding hope to grasp the story of our insane fancy about AU, element 79? How could he think that today, when we have flying and power sources, we still tie ourselves to a superstition which we do not even any longer believe, but that these visitors may very well be plumbing and testing our power resources. We have at least more than a couple of strands of suggestion and deduction, and this possible knowledge has come through our latest instrument of testing what we can't see. Radar, The radar not only tells you of planes that haven't yet arrived, of shoals of fish in the sea and where you may catch them, of raindrops falling in the height of the sky, of meteors as they fly invisibly by day, and of their long tails and trains when they have faded from view, even at night. But radar also tells us of things that never turn up to our eyes naturally we would expect that after all what we have just been talking of makes that not only likely but certain if with electric instruments you can tell by the radiation it gives off where water is underground where oil and coal and iron may be lying a thousand or more feet underground why not detect radiations that come from outside the earth. Of course, thunderstorms, even when they are not booming and crashing, now give themselves away to radar and indeed to many an ordinary radio set. But there are some radiations, radar findings that awake speculation as to whether there couldn't be an intelligence, a probing intelligence behind those these rods and lines of force, these ultra-visible objects that send back the echo that radar picks up. In this case, one of the most popular articles on the problem was issued, as it happened by the Saturday Evening Post, the very magazine that tried to poo-poo out of existence the disks themselves. On March 6, 1948, While the sources were very much, and were to continue to be, on men's tongues and on their minds, the Post published a startling story under the name, starting enough in itself, The Sky is Haunted. No question mark to give you a chance to doubt it. Flat statement. These objects, which Radar had been picking up, mainly over North California, the author of the article calls, Gizmos. on one occasion the radar picked up and gave full indication of the fact that a plane must be crossing the flying film on which it, the radar, was being operated. He gave the marks which are the signs that a plane is being echo sounded and that it is a plane and not a shower of rain or a storm. If there was no living intelligence directing this invisible point or beam, and the focus would move with the wind. But these gizmos didn't. So it may be that we are being probed, which is precisely what we would expect of super flyers, probed by their detection rays. When our radar comes up against these foci, F-O-C-I, and shafts of invisible force, it gives off the signal which it utters when it strikes a solid object. For we must remember that the hardest radiation that we know, the radiation that comes from the cosmic deep of the outer sky, is so hard that we can't feel it. That radiation rushes through our bodies, disturbing Sir James Jeans told the present writer probably not more than a couple of hundred of the trillions of atoms that make up our bodies. It rushes through matter as light like through a window and has to go hundreds of feet into the air. Perhaps the hardest goes thousands before it is checked. So these rods and foci of force, directed force, that the radar picks up may be from the discs. Now, granted that they must want to find out our sources of power, to understand our natures and capacity. They would direct their the de- di- direct their detectors wherever they found a great dump of any element. At Fort Knox they would find the most refined and the most accumulated dump of AU, gold, that is or has ever been. This then must be our real source of power, excavation one. And marvellous to say in this respect, we we may assume them to think of ahead of them, at least from their generously cautious point of view, which allows, when someone does something that seems to be absolutely stupid, it can't be so stupid as that, and so maybe ultra clever. Just, just me the drink. None of the instruments which the smaller discs carried could find out the radioactive, the power aspect and the potentiality of the great dump of gold. No doubt they tried night after night and brought back to high up headquarters again and again a blank. Two things were possible. Perhaps the power was screened in some way. Perhaps at night it was protected or immune from the probes. At least one more assault ought to be made on the problem and at daytime. At least one ought to bring out all, sorry, at least one ought to bring all one's guns of detection and probe the diagnosis to bear on this. The hardest nut, the most mysterious problem that earth had as yet given them to crack. Perhaps the most powerful detectors are too massive to be mounted safely on the hundred foot discs or born in the long black 100-foot-length tubes. Perhaps the super mothership. ship, perhaps what may be the artificial satellite that rides out on our orbit, alone carries the plant that could range and probe the gold riddle. Then, of necessity, they will bring down their monster ship. It would come rushing over and, after the great swoop, go back to its high station where maybe it rides three or four hundred miles or more, sweeping round us like a swift, minute, cryptic moon. But alas, the story ended with a miscalculation, one that probably could not have been foreseen, but one that may have led to even more caution on their part, as it did lead to more alarm on ours. Footnote 2. This argument gains additional force from Radar radar Man D.W. Chase's account of his Oregon sightings for he asks readers to study the path of flight of disks which have have been seen in Oregon and the neighbouring states he maintains that they may all be charted as either going toward or coming away from the large uh, Hanford Hanford Washington atomic pile and, as all collectors of news items in regard to the discs know, a number of people in Hamford itself asserted to newspaper men that they had sighted a hovering object over their town in October 1950. See further page 110. The same article in Fate for January 1951 that carried a reproduction of Mr Chase's article and confirmatory evidence of the radar recorded gizmos, but called, more charmingly, Radar angels. Whatever their right name, these radar-recorded bodies seem to be purposive and up to some explorative research of our environment and maybe of ourselves. Here then, we ought to ask another question. Are such notions as an artificial satellite quite absurd? The answer is, certainly not. The step toward outer space and, say, a journey to the moon, off which, it must be remembered, quite a good echo has already been caught, has, as a first planned step, that we should mount a minute model satellite of our own. The plans are already being worked out. The Nazis were working at it as their super siege gun to fire down on their foes. Now the defence centre at the Great Building in Washington, D.C., called the Pentagon, has definitely announced the US Earth Satellite Vehicle Program. The man-constructed satellite is to get out to its station by means of its rockets, which will boost it aloft. It must go over 20,000 miles per hour to get free enough of the Earth's pull, but it will not be sent nor let go very far, so far as space is concerned. As 500 miles out, Its automatic guiding gear will switch it round at right angles. The rockets then cease to drive it and spinning on its course, as is the moon on its circular path of a quarter of a million miles farther out, our first contribution to the solar system. This earth child will rush round and round us. It will get round our girth in a couple of hours. Then when that is established we are, so the plan goes, to plant farther out. Another stepping stone on the printless skies. The second base might act as a dock for other craft, which will launch out from this floating jetty and plunge into the real depths, wherein the bright and immense earth will shrink into a watery gleam of light in the fabulous darkness, or a moat of blackness against the blinding welter of the unscreened sun that drenches all our orbit with an unceasing blaze, unrelieved. By evening or night. Such are our notions, such what we feel to be our rationale, if high ambitions, though beside them the building of Babel seems a modest proposition, and the overweening pride which Achilles. Achish- 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 I don't know how to pronounce this, but it's that Greek uh, name, isn't it? A-E-S-C-H-Y-L-U-S. That's a a E-S C H Y L U S. diagnosed as the cause of the greatest of uh, the great Persian king's disaster because he tried to chain the Hellespont. Such pride seems a very little thing. But if we consider that our own ground and still mainly grounded forces are thinking of scaling the sky and taking their stand outside, even the atmosphere, we cannot be surprised. We should not be so shocked if we should find that we have been forestalled, and that someone else has already taken up their post on this desirable location with its unrivaled view of landscape and seascape. So now we may say that we have some notion. If only the sketchist of the sky cruiser's cruise viewing stations viewing pa- viewing powers and views. Of course, they must have soon learnt that our automobiles didn't really move themselves, weren't really automatic. They were carapaced insects. But we, the true motivators and living units, were these cars, still smaller, slower and frailer inmates. So too with our planes. But our powers, these still remained baffling. What could be our real forces? They would soon have detected our dependence on steam and oil. But mustn't they by now have suspected something much more disquieting? However disproportionate it must seem to our puny controls, our feeble bodies, mustn't it be suspected by a looker on? Mustn't his radar probes continually propose that places such as Oak Ridge and Hanford in the States or Harwell in Britain, have an alarming reaction note, a forbidding radiation. We have seen that one good and fortunate observer, Chase, has no doubt of this. The direction in which such suspicions would, and indeed must, point, we shall be having to consider when, without further accumulation of the touch of knowledge of both craft and crews, we reopen the question, whence? Before that, though, we must ask another preliminary craft crew question. Granted that the smaller disks come down from a, from a giant disk riding now as our second and very midget, moonlight under our lee, lee. Could a whole swarm of visitors have such a base? What was viewed once, and perhaps twice, was a monstrous enough thing, perhaps a thousand feet across. Nevertheless, is that large enough to act as the floating jetty for crews to man, say a thousand or more craft, many a hundred feet across. To ask a human crew of a whole flotilla flotilla, to lie up and rest out in one mothership of such a size would create the cruelest congestion. But congestion bears an exact inverse relation to size. The first gets less as the second gets more. It is here then... That we must raise again an important piece of craft evidence as throwing light on crew build. On this point, we had a startling and at the same time, it seemed anomalous piece of expert witnessing, which now has a strange appositeness. We recall that at the White Sands observations, Commander McLaughlin remarked, as a trained observer would and could, that there were two acute problems raised by the flight of the sources as the observing teams checked it. The first was the tremendous speed, 18,000 miles per hour, which which is, of course, the speed you must go to become an artificial satellite and avoid falling back onto the earth. And on top of that, and even more serious, the tremendous acceleration. In short, nothing larger than an insect, say a bee, could stand that sheer push and not, literally, be pushed out of life, pushed out of its body. And yet, and this is the second point, the commander felt that, considering the way the discs were handled and turned, it seemed unavoidable that they were under direct control of inmates. They were manned. So we must assume that the masters of these machines are minute. What that may mean, by and large, we can wait a moment to see. Well, we fit this answer. As far as we have it, to the question which raised it, could a disc only a a thousand feet across act as the rest home and holiday ground for crews that man that man whole fleets of discs that man whole fleets of discs to an insect, of course, a residence of a thousand feet across would not merely. Would well, not merely a city, it would be a whole country, a whole province, a state in itself. Okay, so that was chapter 11. The crews and their views. Uh, now to chapter 12, went again.